I'm going to give everybody fair warning. I'm extremely uncomfortable and hot in this sweater. So if I have to take it off during my sermon, please forgive me. I've got a t-shirt on. It's probably not the best t-shirt to wear if you're going to preach. But uh, I should have learned my lesson a long time ago. This sweater came from Peru. It's made of alpaca. And the guy assured me, he promised me that it was baby alpaca. You see, baby alpaca doesn't itch. And it's probably the third or fourth time I've been assured and promised it's baby alpaca. And it feels that way for a little while, but then eventually it starts itching like an adult alpaca. So I think the sweater grows up. That's two scarves that I have at home I can't wear anymore. And this sweater is getting to the point where I don't know if I can wear it anymore. So uh, I think it grew up. So if I shed it, just pay no attention and pay no attention to what's on the front of my T-shirt, if you don't mind. I was looking for a black one to, to, to match with this, and I grabbed one in the closet that was I'd never worn before, and I said, I need to wear this. Anyway, open your Bibles today to um, Proverbs chapter 11. The last few weeks during this Advent season, we have been looking at a few verses here in the middle of Proverbs 11 that bridge well or highlight some unsung heroes or some unsung details that we have often overlooked in the Christmas story. And then we've taken those things and applied them to us living right now in these dark times. And I hope you've come away encouraged. We want to continue that this morning. I've said this before, some of the songs we sang this morning that are associated with Christmas, in particular, Joy to the World, these aren't written about the first coming of Christ in a manger. They're written about His second coming when He returns to earth to set up a kingdom. And when you look at the Old Testament prophecies of the coming of Messiah, often you'll find the first advent and the second advent juxtaposed right beside each other. All of the prophetic scriptures that we highlight or remember this time of year about the birth of Christ are juxtaposed right beside details of His second coming. So much so that what was sure... At the first coming is just as sure with the second. They can't be separated. And that ought to affect our behavior. One of the best ways to celebrate the coming of Messiah the first time is to preach the coming of the Messiah again and to live as if we actually believe that. There's a lot of Christians in America's churches today that will confess truths of the Scriptures. They will say it with their mouth but they live as if they don't believe it. They live as if they don't believe it. And this has been exposed. It's been exposed brightly during the COVID-19 madness here in America. So much so that even the heathen in other nations, heathen in poor nations who face far more risk from contracting any virus because of the lack of medical care, These heathen live more as if they believe what we say about trusting the Lord. I was greatly encouraged by a report Brother Bishnu sent me from Nepal about a journey he took into the mountains 
recently to an area that they had heretofore not been. Things did not work out as, it, as they had anticipated. God allowed obstacles in the path that redirected their route. And God did some amazing things. There were Muslims that received a copy of the scriptures that had never heard the name of Jesus. There were people in villages that claimed to be Christians but had never heard the gospel. And as a result, were able to be instructed there. And there were people who'd never heard about Jesus that were given a copy of God's word. And one thing that struck me as he shared with me about this is that in these villages, he said COVID-19 is like a distant memory. People got far bigger things to concern themselves with. And you can go out in the village and it's as if it isn't even happening. And people have gone about their lives. And there's an incredible open door for the gospel. I was greatly encouraged by that. I'm greatly encouraged by testimonies of believers throughout history who in their work and service for the Lord, safety was never first. Heck, it was never second or third. Safety wasn't first. And yet it is for us. We're obsessed with it in this culture. Safety wasn't first for those involved in the Christmas story. Had it been... Things would not have transpired as it had been written long ago with the prophets. Safety has its place, but in the life of a Christian, it should never be first. We haven't been called to safety. We've been called to obedience as pilgrims, as ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ. Proverbs 11. We've looked the last few weeks. We looked at 11 verse 7. When a wicked man dieth, his expectation shall perish. The hope of unjust men perish. Guys, the hope and expectation of the wicked dies when they die. But not so for the righteous. In the Christmas story, there were those who were old and at the threshold of death. Simeon being one of those. The old man who waited to see the coming of the Christ child. And when he did, he was content to die. Lord, let thy servant now depart. For I have seen him. His hope and his expectation didn't die with him. Proverbs 11.10 we skip down. When it goeth well with the righteous, the city rejoiceth. And when the wicked perish, there is shouting. Amen. Even amongst the wicked, when righteousness is exalted and the wicked are judged, there is joy. There is shouting. For this to happen... Righteous men must interpose between evil and its victims. And we see that in the Christmas story with the wise men. We talk about the wise men bringing their gifts and coming from afar. But we fail to understand that the wise men defied an order from a king. The wise men refused to comply with a king's request. They interposed between this wicked tyrant, Herod, and his proposed victims, Mary, Joseph, and the Christ child. And because they did not return and bring him word, because they disobeyed, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph were able to escape what came to Bethlehem. Proverbs eleven eight: The righteous is delivered out of trouble, and the wicked cometh in his stead. This is an eternal principle. Be it through death of the believer, which is precious in the eyes of the Lord, Psalm 116, or be it through the resurrection or the rapture, the coming of Christ, 
The righteous is delivered out of trouble. And we see this in the story of the, of, of, of the birth of Christ. Joseph acted to deliver his family from trouble. They were delivered. God delivered them. And they escaped to Egypt and were preserved. We talked a little bit about that last week, how Moses, I mean, uh, Joseph took Mary to be his wife. He took them down to Egypt and he took them home. A picture of what Christ does for us when he comes for his church. The righteous were delivered because of the obedience and determination of Joseph. And then I want to look at verse 9 today. We'll look at verse 11 next week. A hypocrite with his mouth destroys his neighbor. There's a lot of hypocrites in America today that profess Christ and with their mouths and the things they say and the things they post on Facebook, they've destroyed many of their neighbors, destroyed many of them, brought reproach on the name of Christ, showed themselves to be fools, undermined others' interest or possible openness to the things of God. But through knowledge, the just shall be delivered. Guys, it's through knowledge that we can be delivered. Knowledge of what? Jeremiah 8 verse 9 sheds some light on this. We often forget that when the prophets wrote or preached, they often did so in a context where what they were saying was being rejected by the majority. It wasn't the majority opinion. It wasn't the recommendations of the CDC. It was not the position of the politicians in control of the land. What they said and spoke was considered a trouble to society. It wasn't welcome. We praise the words of the prophets today. But in many ways, we act like they're persecutors. When one comes up among us who dares to speak boldly, who dares to speak harshly or bluntly. We had the privilege to go preach Friday night around Hickory. Obviously, we defied curfew. In my opinion, we weren't breaking the curfew. It's legally invalid. It has no authority. But preaching the gospel on a street corner is the most essential activity that can possibly take place in America today. So I gladly defy the governor in this. It was funny, the young kids that used to cruise up and down Highway 70 are still doing it. Still blowing out the mufflers. Still speeding off and burning rubber when they pass by the preacher. These things are a little aggravating. Still taunting, still insulting. Not when they come to a stop sign. Not while looking at the preacher, but after they make the turn and start driving off. That's when the insult comes. The mark of a coward. Won't come talk to the preacher, but will curse him out as they're driving off. It's funny. It's laughable. If the police, the city police wanted to collect some funds for the city here in Hickory, a good place to park on a Friday night would be at the intersection, the stoplight coming out of Walmart onto the road where you turn left to head up to Highway 70. If they just come park while the preacher's preaching, they could collect a lot of revenue for the city. Because people are so uncomfortable with the Word of God, they will not come to a full stop at that stop sign. Roll right through it every time. 
Now, when the preacher shuts up and packs up to go home, they start stopping. It's funny. It's funny. But I was also encouraged by these young people, even the ones that mocked what we had to say, because they were out, and they stayed out after 10 p.m., and were still cruising. And there was a policeman parked across the street at the gas station. As we walked in to grab us a coffee after preaching, we passed by a few of those people who were mocking us. I went up to a young man. I said, hey, hey, bro, we're the preachers you guys were mocking. Oh, no, 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 we weren't mocking. We support what you have to say. Well, I said, well, sometimes I get the mockers confused with the ones who appreciate it. Nevertheless, here's a gospel track, guys. And as we pulled out, we, we, we back, we, it was kind of awkward, but Matthew pulled up beside the, the officer and, we rolled down the window and asked him if he was on curfew duty. And we shared a laugh, told him we were the preachers down there. And it was just encouraging that this officer, the farthest thing from his mind was some illegal curfew. And uh, we made it clear that we're out here to help you guys. If we preach hard and hellfire and brimstone with these young people, maybe they'll commit less crimes. And you guys can have, have to work a little less hard when it comes to crime. So all of those things were encouraging the other night. But we preached hard. And if you watched any of the tape, maybe I shouldn't have posted it. Some people can't handle that stuff. And they would condemn it. That's too hard. You shouldn't be doing that. In the course of our preaching, we were riding through a few of the parking lots and sharing the gospel through the speaker. And a man approached and he said, Hey, I got something to say. I said, Are you friend or foe? He said, Friend. I said, stay on, get to your point, we're busy here, got to preach. I'm all in favor of America coming back to God, but you guys are out here at 8 o'clock at night and you're just bothering people. And I said, well, amen, we're doing what, exactly what we came here to do, sir, to bother people. Because people like you need to be bothered. America needs to be bothered. Both the church and the wicked. Because far too long we've taken our precious liberties for granted. Now some people can't handle that and yet they praise the prophets of the scriptures who did the exact same thing. I'm reminded of what Jesus said to the Pharisees. You folks build the tombs of the prophets but it's your fathers who killed them. We look at the prophets today and we talk about them and we cite them in our sermons and our devotions and yet those who live and preach as the prophets do in the church have no place. And we're quick to condemn them or cut them off because they say something that might be a little bit harsh and affect our sentimentalities. These prophecies in Jeremiah are like that. Jeremiah 8 Jeremiah wasn't just writing something down. He was standing in the gate of the Lord's house. God told him, go to the door of the temple and preach these words. And it wasn't received favorably. Jeremiah 8 verse 9, what does he say to the people? For behold, no, I'm sorry, the wise men are ashamed. Talking about the wise and the intelligent, the priest and the princess there in Jerusalem. The wise men are ashamed. They are dismayed and taken low. They have rejected the word of the Lord. What wisdom is in them? In other words, you've rejected God's word. You have no wisdom. So a lack of wisdom, a lack of knowledge comes from rejecting 
God's word from rejecting it. The prophet had the boldness to say that in those days, and we praise it. But when a man of God stands up and says such a thing today, we say he's not being sensitive. I like your message, but not the way in which you're saying it. There's always something. Are we any different than those Pharisees? We build up the tombs and honor the prophets, but our fathers put them to death. Through knowledge, the just shall be delivered. Through knowledge of what? The knowledge of the word of the Lord. Through the knowledge of the scriptures, guys, we can be delivered from all this madness. And if we reject the scriptures, there is no wisdom in us. Why are we listening to the recommendations and the expert opinions of those who reject the word of the Lord? Why are we listening to the prescriptions of those who would say that a baby in his mother's womb is not a human, that a person, a man in a man's body can actually be a woman, and that there's no God. And yet we take what they say as gospel truth and hide in our homes out of fear. How can these things be? It's not by following CDC recommendations or guidelines that you can be delivered. It's through knowledge that the just shall be delivered. Knowledge of the word of the Lord. Mm-hmm. And guys, we see this in the Christmas story. We see it in the life of one who's talked about a lot. And yet this detail is overlooked. Turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verse 38 Mary had been visited by the angel and told that she was going to be conceived of the, that that a child would be conceived of the Holy Ghost in her womb, that he would be the Messiah. She was to call his name Jesus. He would save his people from their sins. She wondered how this could be. I've not known a man. I'm a virgin. The angel said, it's the Holy Ghost that will overshadow you. And what is born of you will be the Son of God. Because with God, nothing is impossible. And then the angel told her about her cousin Elizabeth, who was very old, who was also pregnant. Nothing is impossible with God. And then verse 38, this was Mary's response. Not like Zacharias who doubted and God made him mute until John was born. Mary said, behold the handmaid of the Lord. I'm I'm your servant, Lord. Be it unto me... According to thy word. In other words, may it be just like you have said. So here we, Mary acknowledges that this is the word of the Lord. And by the word of the Lord, these things will happen. It's what she confesses with her mouth. What many of us would confess. Chapter 2. Verses 4 and 5. It's not enough to say it with your mouth. What do you do with it when the rubber meets the road? Well, we see this. And Joseph went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed 
with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. Joseph and Mary left Nazareth. It's about 90 miles of travel between Nazareth and Bethlehem. Now, there were two main routes. Well, there were two routes they could have taken. We don't know which route it was. Jesus took each of the two routes in his ministry. One of those, the more popular route, followed the Jezreel Valley down to the Jordan River and then followed the Jordan River Valley south to Jericho and then climbed up to Jerusalem from there. That was a longer route. A more direct route went straight through the, Samari- the, the hills of Samaria, straight south into the hills of Samaria, what uh, the world would call the West Bank today. I call it Samaria. I don't call it the West Bank when I go to Israel and I talk to the soldiers at the checkpoints, I call it Judea and Samaria because that's what it is. Mm-hmm. And that gets me through the checkpoints with no problem. So just call it Judea and Samaria. Don't call it the West Bank and they'll, they know you have uh, some common sense. But anyway, one route went straight south through Samaria's hill country and it went through the lands of the Samaritans, those that the Assyrians brought in to replace the northern kingdom that had been taken captive. And it wasn't exactly a safe route, and the Jews would avoid it. They didn't want any dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus didn't avoid it. He went back from Jerusalem through Samaria. And he loved the Samaritan people enough to take the gospel to them, and his disciples were initially astounded by that. We don't know which route they took. The route through Samaria would have been closer. The route down around the Jordan Valley might have been a little more safe, but a lot longer. There were still robbers on the road. Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan going down the road to Jericho. We don't know, but it's about 90 miles, and it was an arduous journey. It probably took about 7 to 10 days, an arduous journey, while Mary was great with child. Now, why did Mary go with Joseph? Was it necessary that the entire family had to leave their village to go down and pay a tax? I don't believe so. Joseph could have made that journey himself. He could have paid the tax for his family. I mean, usually all over the world when a woman is great with child and the husband is busy or he has something he has to go do, the woman surrounds herself. She nests herself in her home. And the village women gather around to care for her and the husband continues to do what he has to do to make ends meet for the family. In the third world, we see the husbands go out a lot of times to the fields or whatever, and they're not there when the baby is born. Why did Mary go? Did she have to? I don't believe so. I believe it was a choice they made because they knew the word of the Lord and the word of the Lord said Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. So Joseph loaded her up and they went. She was great with child. And when she should have been resting... Like ladies do when they're great with child. That means it's time for the baby to be born. It could happen at any time. She mounts a donkey and they take an arduous journey. For Mary, health and safety was not first for her. For Mary, she lived as if she believed the word of the Lord. She didn't pushed to stay home. The word of the Lord said Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. 
the word of the Lord said that she would bring forth this firstborn son and that he would grow up to sit on the throne of of his father David. The word of the Lord said these things and by that knowledge she was delivered and could go out and make this journey without fear. If God says these things, then why am I worried about having to stop in the middle of the desert and have a baby? Because this is what the word of the Lord said. So for Mary... Safety and health wasn't first. And for Mary, she lived and acted as if she really believed the things she had confessed with her mouth. We can learn from that. Friends, when it says that she was great with child, that means that the birth of Christ at that moment was imminent. She was in the third trimester It could have happened at any time when they left Nazareth. Jesus could have come at any time. It was time for him to be born. Some ladies give birth a little premature. Some give birth around the due date. Others carry that baby a couple weeks longer. Very rarely is a baby ever born on the due date. But when the due date approaches... The coming of that child is imminent. It could happen at any time. Other things may happen first, but nothing has to happen first. And that was the state of things when Mary and Joseph left Nazareth. Christ's coming was imminent. It wasn't imminent before that because the baby had to grow in her womb. There would be no premature birth. There would be no birth defect. There would be no death of the baby or losing a baby. God's word had said she would come. She would bear bear the Son of God. But as the third trimester came, the the coming was intimate. And how did Mary and Joseph prepare for that? How did Mary prepare, prepare for that as a mother? She carried on. She carried on in the faithful performance of her present duties, which was to accompany her husband to Bethlehem so they could be where the prophet said they would be when the Savior came. Why did she even make the journey? Because she had knowledge of God's word. And by knowledge of God's word, the just shall be delivered. Not like the hypocrites who say one thing and then destroy the faith or the entrance or the, or, or the interest or the openness of their neighbor by their hypocrisy, but as one who believed what she confessed with her mouth. Is that us? Mary believed and lived as if she believed what she confessed. And therefore, safety and health wasn't first. Her own safety and health wasn't first in her life. The same can be said of the Apostle Paul. Exact same attitude. 2 Timothy. Second Timothy chapter 4. We're at the end of his life. He knows that his death is imminent. He's been sentenced to death. Tradition says he was beheaded under Nero. A merciful death, actually, very quick. No pain. Perhaps this was a merciful thing. Maybe Nero remembered Paul from earlier and gave him a break because other people... Nero was nailing the crosses and lighting on fire and killing them through horrible, torturous deaths. But Christ, uh, Paul met his end quickly and he knew it was imminent when he wrote to Timothy. Verse 6, I am ready to be offered. 
and the time of my departure is at hand. At hand means imminent. It could come at any time. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Was there fear in Paul's pen? Was there nervousness? Was there shame? No. Paul was content. He was ready to be delivered because not only did he know his expectation wouldn't die with him, he knew the Word of God. And by that knowledge, he was delivered and was content to be offered for the Lord. Earlier, Paul had believed that Christ would come for the church in his lifetime. If you go back to 1 Thessalonians 4, the great chapter on the rapture, he talks about those who are asleep, the dead in Christ will rise first at the trumpet, and then we, Paul included, which are alive and remain, will be caught up together with them in the air. So shall we ever meet the Lord in the air. Caught up, the Latin word for caught up there is where we get the English word rapture. Paul believed he would be alive to see the rapture of Christ. Why did he believe this? And why was he undeterred or unfazed when it became evident that this wasn't going to happen? As we see there in 2 Timothy. At one time, Paul thought he'd be alive to see the coming of the Lord. But in 2 Timothy, in the prison in Rome, he knows that's not going to happen. His death is imminent. And yet he was unfazed. Yet he was undeterred. Yet he was content. And yet he lived and wrote as if he believed the things he said and wrote. Why? Why could Paul not see his own expectation in terms of being alive at the coming of Christ and yet still encourage Timothy as if he was unfazed? Because he understood that Christ's coming for all of us is imminent. It was imminent in his day, and all these many years later, it's imminent for us. And that one way or another, be it through death or the coming of Christ for his church, by our knowledge of the scriptures, we are delivered from fear, and we would be delivered from this world. The Word of God would deliver Him, would deliver us either way. For Mary heading to Bethlehem, Christ's coming was imminent. For us today, as it was for Paul all those many years ago, Christ's coming for His church is imminent. Do we live and behave as as if we believe that? First of all, do the Scriptures teach that in the New Testament? And secondly, do we live and act as if we believe it? Those are the questions. Mary knew what the Scriptures said, and she lived and acted as if she believed it. If she'd have followed CDC recommendations, she would have stayed home. What is this word imminent? It comes from a Latin word, just like rapture comes from the Latin word raptuo, to catch away or seize. Imminent comes from a Latin word, emineo, which means to overhang or to project out. Well, what, what does that mean? 
There are two images that come to my mind from mountaineering. I love climbing big mountains. I love going to high altitude. And if you get high enough and you get onto glaciers or you get into snow, there, there are these eminences that you will see. And you better be very careful in their vicinity. One is called a serac. A serac is a block or column of glacial ice that forms when the when a glacier is a river of, river of ice that slowly makes its way down at the mountain and spits out things at the bottom. And as the glacier moves, it will split and create a crevasse. And that's really, the ground underneath is not smooth, and so when it moves over rough places, the great glacier will split. A crevasse or a crack can be very thin. You can step over it. Or it can be very wide. It can be shallow or it can be deep. It's a very fascinating thing to peer down into a crevasse. You'll see shades of blue you'll never see anywhere else. And there's a silence down there that's haunting. But when crevasses intersect on a glacier, it'll form these blocks of ice. Sometimes they're as big as a house. A freestanding block or column of ice. And these seracs eventually will fall. In fact, they can fall over or crumble or topple at any moment. They can be as big as a house, but their fall is imminent. The highest mountain in Peru is a mountain that we see out our, our apartment window when we go to Juarez every morning. It's an incredible view to drink a cup of coffee and look out the window, read the Bible. And we see this mountain, Huascaran. Huascaran is, has two peaks. The South Peak is 22,205 feet above sea level. The North Peak is 21,831 feet above sea level. Very large mountains. And these two peaks are separated by a saddle or a gap that's called the La Garganta, the throat. It's called the throat of Huascaran in Spanish. And the mountaineering route is not technically difficult in terms of mixed rock and ice climbing, but the route that goes up to the throat has to navigate a glacial icefall, and there are lots of seracs along this route. These seracs are dangerous because they could fall at any moment. You don't know when, and it may not be while you're on the mountain, but it could be. And so you have to be very careful. People die on Huascaran when these seracs fall. And they just fall over and it's over. There's another feature you'll find high on the mountains in the snow, what's called a snow cornice. A snow cornice is when it forms when wind blows snow over very sharp, breaks in the terrain, like sharp rocks that you would find on a ridge. When wind blows snow, it, the snow will come over, and we call it a cornice. It's an overhang of snow. Down in the Andes in South America, from a distance, we've seen large snow cornices. They project out 9 to 10 feet. There's nothing below them, and it's, an amazing, it's amazing that they're hanging there because they're going to fall at some point. And I don't want to be underneath it. We saw a large snow cornice somewhere the last time I was down there. And I couldn't believe 
that large shelf of snow was just hanging there. But with a snow cornice, there's avalanche danger. We saw a small one back in October when Eric and Bethany and I climbed Granite Peak in Montana. I stayed away from them because they could collapse at any moment, just like a serac. The collapse of these formations are certain and yet uncertain in terms of wind. They won't fall necessarily soon. Other things may happen. Storms may come. The route may alter. Things may change on the glacier. But nothing else has to happen for these things to collapse. That's why a mountaineer must watch out. Pay attention to what he's doing. Don't get too close. And if you have to go through an area, you go through quick. You don't mess around. That is the nature of imminency. If something is imminent, other things may take place first, but nothing must take place first. Imminency is certain and yet uncertain at the same time. Therefore, it demands of us an expectant attitude always. Christ's coming, is it imminent? Does the New Testament teach that it's imminent? And if it is, do we live with an expectant attitude? Does it affect our action? Just like it affected Mary's. Are we looking forward to it? Are we looking out for it? And are we patiently awaiting it with reverence and fear? For a mountaineer in the presence of a serac or a cornice, he must move fast. He must be very careful about his route finding. He must stay away. He must be vigilant. If Christ's coming is as imminent as the fall of a serac, should it not affect our behavior? Should it not force us to be as was Mary in her example, being great with child as she went out on that journey for Bethlehem? So the question for you today is, does the New Testament teach an imminent coming of Christ for His people, for His church, to deliver them? Was Christ's first coming imminent when the prophecies were written long before? No, because other things had to happen. Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks declared that 69 weeks of years would transpire between the commandment of King Artaxerxes that sent Nehemiah back to rebuild the city unto Messiah the Prince. So 69 weeks of years had to transpire, 483. So when that prophecy was given, the coming of, given the coming of Messiah was not imminent. It didn't become imminent until the years drew nigh for the end of that 69 weeks of years. Then it was imminent because there was... Was the the Messiah the prince his birth? Was it the time when he was recognized as the prince by Israel on, on Palm Sunday? They didn't know these things. There were those who knew the coming was drawing nigh based on the prophecies. That's why Simeon was in the temple. So at that time it was imminent. But when it was declared, it wasn't. Is Christ's second coming imminent? No. Daniel tells us in that same prophecy that his second coming is is at the end of a seven-year period called the 70th week. 
The middle of that week, Antichrist will betray the Jews and set up an abomination of desolation. And only at the end of the week does the Son of Man come. Hosea tells us that Christ won't come again to deliver Israel and set up His kingdom until the people recognize their great transgression and call for Him. So His second coming is not imminent. Other things must happen first. Antichrist must arise. He must break the treaty. The seals and the trumpets and the vile judgments must be dispersed. Israel must be brought to a place where she has no other choice but to acknowledge that she rejected the Messiah and then call for Him. These things have to happen. His second coming is not imminent. However, is Christ coming for His church imminent? If it is, then you would expect that the New Testament would tell us to be ready at any time. Does it? Yeah, it does. Matthew chapter 24, I touched on this briefly last week. I've talked about the Olivet Discourse in the past. I don't want to go into a lot of detail here. What's key... Matthew 24 verses Luke 21, it's the same basic topics, but there's some differences. The key is that in Matthew 24, Jesus is speaking privately to His disciples. In Luke 21, He's talking to the people. They're in the temple. So there are details and emphasis, emphases that Jesus gives to His disciples that you won't find when He's speaking to the people. In verses 37 through 44, Jesus says, But as the days of Noah were, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark. And they knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. There shall be two in the field, one shall be taken, the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken, the other left. Watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord does come. What's, what's he talking about? What coming is he talking about? Is he talking about his second coming? His second coming, the coming of God... The judgment of God upon the world in the tribulation is no new doctrine in the New Testament. It's written about in the prophets. Turn to Isaiah, Isaiah 24. Jesus says in Matthew 24, in reference to the coming He's speaking about, that it would be days of pseudo-security. Men would be eating, drinking, getting married, living their lives. And then the sun would come. One in the field would be taken, the other would be left. What's he talking about? And then he tells his disciples, you've got to be ready at any moment. You don't know the hour. If you go to Isaiah 24, what we hear, have here is a prophecy concerning the days of tribulation. The tribulation period exists to do two things. I've taught on this. It exists to punish the world for its wickedness and its sin. All these evil people in our government, if they're still alive, will be punished by God during the tribulation period. It also serves to wake up the stiff-necked, hard-hearted people of Israel so they finally see that they miss their Messiah. That's its two purposes. And so the tribulation won't be a time 
of these things that Jesus talks about in the days of Noah. And the proof is right here in Isaiah 24. Look in verses 6 through 11. Therefore hath the curse devoured the earth, and they that dwell therein are desolate. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and there are few men left. This is at, toward the end of the tribulation after the, during the vile judgments. The new wine mourns. The vine languisheth. All the merry-hearted do sigh. The mirth of tabrets ceaseth. All these things that Jesus said would be going on during this time of tribulation are, are ceased. They're not happening because the world has been ransacked. The mirth of tabret ceaseth. The noise of them that rejoice endeth. The joy of the harp ceaseth. They shall not drink wine with a song. Strong drink shall be bitter to them that drink it. The city of confusion is broken down. Every house is shut up that no man may come in. There is a crying for wine in the streets. All joy is darkened. The mirth of the land is gone. At the end of the tribulation, just prior to Christ's second coming, there is no mirth. There is no eating and drinking and marrying and giving to marriage. It's all gone. And then you go down to verse 21. What's happening during these days? In that day when the mirth is gone, the Lord shall punish the host of the high ones that are on high and the kings of the earth upon the earth. That's how we know this is talking about the end of the tribulation period when the kings of the earth are punished. Antichrist being first in line. There is no mirth. There is no party. There is no marrying and giving in marriage ahead of the second coming of Christ. But Christ tells His disciples that in the days of Noah, when this flood came unexpectedly, there was no signs. It hadn't rained like that before. That's when Christ is going to come. And the ones He tells to be ready are His disciples in a day when men are doing what they won't be doing at the end of the tribulation. Therefore, we are to be ready for we know not what hour the Lord comes for us, His church. I talked a little bit last week of the word used, taken, for the two in the field and the two at the grinding stone and how it means to be received and delivered. Same verb used in the life of Joseph. Verse 44 in Matthew 24, Be ready always, therefore be also ready, for in such an hour as you think not the Son of Man cometh. Be ready always. He will come when you least expected. Is this not an imminent coming? In Luke 17, Jesus talking to His disciples again refers to Christ coming for His people at a time of pseudo-security like it was for the people in Noah's day, like it was for the people of Sodom before it rained fire and brimstone. Unlike what is described there in Isaiah 24. Jesus' disciples, when he talks about two in the field, two at the mill, two in the bed, one taken, the other left, they ask where. Sometimes we might think they're asking where are they being taken. That's not what they're asking. They're asking where are they being left behind. And Jesus tells them, referring to the exact same thing Isaiah the prophet refers to in Isaiah 18. That those left would be left to the birds. 
Luke 12, to his disciples and his servants, he says, be ready at all times. And then Peter asks an appropriate question. In Luke 12, let your loins be girded about and your lights burning. Verse 40, be ye therefore ready also for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when you think not. Then Peter asked him, Lord, are you talking to us, your disciples? Are you speaking about us or are you talking to all people with this being ready? And then Jesus says, verse 42, Who then is the faithful and wise steward whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Jesus answered Peter's question. Peter said, are you talking to us or are you talking to the whole world here about being ready at any time? Jesus answered it by making reference to the wise, ser- the wise steward and the servant. He was talking to his servants. To his servants, be ready at any time. According to Jesus, he is coming for his disciples. John 14, 1 through 3, Paralambano. We talked about that last week. And that coming is intimate. It could happen at any time. It could have happened at any time for the last 1900 years of church history. In biblical prophecy concerning the second coming of Messiah, the tribulation and the restoration of Israel, none of that stuff has to happen first. Paul knew this, thought it would happen in his lifetime, not just to the Thessalonians, but to the Corinthians as well. What did he tell the Corinthians? We shall not all sleep, but we will be changed in the moment in a twinkling of an eye. Paul thought it would be him. Could have happened in his lifetime. The early Jewish Christians knew Christ's coming for His church was imminent. Look at 1 Corinthians 16.22. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. But man, if a preacher got up and said that today on a street corner behind a pulpit, he'd be ostracized by the church. But yet Paul writes it. And we have no problem with it. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, maranatha. What is this word maranatha? What does that mean? Maranatha was an Aramaic word. It wasn't Greek. It's an Aramaic word used right here in a letter written to Greek Christians. It was a watchword, and Paul stuck it here in a Greek letter to a Greek-speaking audience because they would have known this word. It was a password of sorts that started with the early Jewish Christians petitioning or reminding themselves that the Lord's coming could be at any time. It was a language that the heathen wouldn't understand, and it came to be used even amongst the Greek Believers, a code word. They began to use it because they knew that Christ could come at any time. Maranatha, our Lord comes, is what it means. The Nepalis, the Christian Nepalis do a similar thing. There's a standard greeting that's used in Nepal amongst people when they meet, but the Christians use a watchword that really wouldn't make any sense to the Nepali heathen. 
It translates victory in Messiah. So that when they meet another believer, they exchange that greeting, Jai Mashi. And if the person responds, it spawns, it's a code word of sorts that acknowledges we are believers looking for the Messiah. Same thing. The, this use of the word Maranatha to the Corinthians indicates they believed Christ would come or could come at any moment for them. Philippians 4 verse 5, Paul says, The Lord is at hand. Writing to the Philippians, the Lord is at hand. Let your moderation be known at all unto all men. The Lord is at hand. That phrase means he could come at any time. It does not mean in the original language he's nearby. It means he could come at any time. And therefore, that was to motivate their Christian conduct. Why were they to let their moderation be known to all men? Because the Lord is at hand. He's coming. You can't let your moderation be known to all men when you're hiding in your home and raked with uh, with fear over a virus that has a 99.6 survival rate. And I think it drops down to 99.4 for people over 75. I may be wrong in the specifics there, but it is very high. It doesn't drop very far. 1 Thessalonians, Paul's going to talk to these Thessalonians in chapter 4 about the rapture and to be ready. But in chapter 1, it's interesting what he commends them for. In chapter 1, verse 10, he commends them because they were those who wait for His Son from heaven who He raised from the dead, even Jesus which delivered us from the wrath to come. Jesus has delivered us from the wrath to come. What I read there in Isaiah 24 is the wrath of God to come. We've been delivered from that. And the Thessalonians weren't sitting around watching or waiting for the temple to be destroyed or for Antichrist to come. They were waiting for the Son of God from heaven. They were waiting. And Paul commended them for waiting for Jesus, not the Antichrist. They were prepared. Titus 2, 12 and 13. We're told in verse 11 that the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It has. Many men have not heard the gospel message. But yet the grace of God has appeared to them. Why? Because it rains on the just and the unjust. Creation bears testimony to God's existence. The curse of sin bears testimony to all that there's a problem between the Creator and His creation. And the human conscience bears testimony to all that that problem is personal. Bearing testimony to all that we need a solution. So yes, the grace of God has appeared to all men because men are privy to these witnesses. Why we need to go out and preach the gospel is the answer to the problem is by special revelation. And we have to preach it. But the grace of revealing the problem has appeared to all men. And what does it teach us? It teaches us that we are to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. For many in America, health and safety is a worldly lust. It's a lust. 
So in your attempts to be safe, to live safe, you don't end up living. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Because judgment's coming. Looking for what? That blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. We believers should be looking for that blessed hope. And that blessed hope ought to be driving how we conduct our lives in such a way that we are prepared at any moment. Why are we told to always be ready and prepared if the blessed hope for the believer is not imminent? Because the second coming, according to Revelation, is not cause for rejoicing amongst the world. What does it say way back in Revelation 1 verse 7? We talked about this long ago. Behold, he cometh with clouds. That's the second coming prophesied there in Daniel 9. The end of the 70 weeks. And every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail for him. Does that sound like a blessed hope? No. Wail, that word wail in the original language literally means to beat the chest in grief and lament. And yet we're told to be ready at any minute for a blessed hope. Not what's written there. Something that could be happening at any time. Is Christ coming imminent? Is it taught such a thing in the New Testament where the believer is concerned? You tell me. James chapter 5. James is writing to scattered Jewish believers. Be patient, verse 7, therefore, brethren, to the com- unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman watcheth for the precious fruits of the earth and has long patience for it until he receive the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. What James says here in verse 9 makes no sense if the coming he is speaking about could not be at any moment. Why would it be so important to reconcile with your brother not to hold a grudge if Christ's coming was far off or or was definitely far off at that time? Eminence is a motivation for Christian conduct and that's how the apostles declared it. Fervent expectancy plus patient endurance in the face of delay demands eminence. We're told to be ready at all times. We're told to patiently endure. When you put these two things together, the only thing that harmonizes it is an imminent coming. That could be at any moment. It could be tomorrow. It could be a hundred years from now. Certain and yet uncertain. 1 John 2.28 is an interesting passage with regard to Christ's imminent coming for His church. And now, little children, abide in Him that when He shall appear... 
we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. When He shall appear. That word when there, translated out of Greek, literally denotes an element of uncertainty. It's not certain when. Be ready. Be ready. We don't want to be ashamed when he comes. Spurgeon had something interesting to say about that very verse. I'm going to read it to you in, a little, in just a few minutes. Revelation 3.11. Christ gives a warning to the church at Philadelphia. Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast which thou hast that no man may take thy crown. Is this a warning or not? If it's, if it's a, a true warning, if it's a real threat, then the coming that he refers to must be imminent. Verse 10 tells us the promise of that coming. Go one verse back. Because thou, the Philadelphian church, has kept the word of my patience. In other words, you've kept my word. By knowledge of the word, you, you, you're going to be delivered. Because of that, I will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. There you have it, the purpose of the tribulation. Confirmed right here by Jesus to the church at Philadelphia what was already written in Isaiah 24. Because you have kept my word, I'm going to keep you from that hour. Be ready, I come quickly. Come quickly for what? To keep you from that hour. If the Holy Spirit, the early church, the Apostle Paul and John knew that the Messiah could come for his bride at any moment or could not return for his bride at any moment because other events had to transpire first, why did they command us in a way that implied at any moment? If they knew other things had to happen, why did they command us as as if they didn't? There's some interesting statements made about this by some of the reformers I thought I would read to you. Um, John Calvin had this to say concerning this imminent coming of Christ. Besides, as he has promised that he will return to us, we ought to hold ourselves prepared at every moment to receive him, that he may not find us Sleeping. He wished us to be uncertain as to his coming, but yet to be prepared to expect him every day and every moment. Calvin understood Christ's coming for his church was imminent. It's funny how, quote unquote, Calvinism, as declared by many who would fancy themselves reformed today, be raised in eschatology that wouldn't agree with this. Wouldn't agree with Calvin's own words. Some of the people that would have a problem with maybe some of the way I phrase things on a street corner on Facebook love men like Luther and Calvin. And yet go read their works. Go read the things Luther had to say to the Pope. William Tyndale, who was burned at the, or he, uh, he was burned at the stake for his role in translating the Bible into English, 
said, we are commanded to look every hour for that day. Christ and his apostles taught no other, but warned us to look for his coming again every hour. Spurgeon commenting on 1 John 2.28, when he shall appear, we won't be ashamed. When means uncertain. Could happen any time. Said these words, the date of that coming is concealed. When he shall come, no man can tell. Watch for him and be always ready that you may not be ashamed at his advent. Should a Christian man go into worldly assemblies and amusements? Would he not be ashamed should his Lord come and find him among the enemies of the cross? I dare not go where I should be ashamed to be found should my Lord come suddenly. Should a Christian man ever be in a passion, suppose his Lord should there and then come, would he not be ashamed at his coming? Or here says of an offender, I will never forgive her. She will never darken my doors again. Would you not be ashamed if the Lord Jesus came and found you unforgiving? All that we may abide in him and never be in such a state that his coming would be unwelcome to us. Beloved, so live from day to day in duty and in devotion that your Lord's coming would be timely. Go about your daily business and abide in him. And then his coming will be a glorious delight to you. For Spurgeon, that coming was imminent. The Bible doesn't teach the second advent is imminent. There are other things that must happen first. But his coming for us is imminent. The Lord delivers the righteous out of trouble, it says there in Proverbs 11. It says also that by knowledge, the righteous are delivered. By knowledge of the Word. His coming to do these things, to deliver us, is imminent. Other things may happen first. Joe Biden may be present. He may not be. But nothing has to happen. This fact, I don't have time today to go into all the verses that teach us as Christians or as the disciples of Christ to be ready at any moment. But this fact, I think I've established it. It's taught by the New Testament. It was affirmed by Jesus, his disciples, by the early church, by some of the great reformers, the great preachers of old that we often look to. This fact should profoundly affect and shape our conversation or our way of life. It should. We say these things, but do we live and act as if we believe it? Mary confessed with her mouth, may it be done according to thy word. She lived and acted as if she believed it, and she was willing to get on a donkey and go to Bethlehem, an arduous journey, when the birth of Christ was imminent. Philippians 3.20 is very convicting. This restates what Paul said to the Colossians in chapter 3. That passage has been preached on here. For our conversation is in heaven. Our life, guys, is in heaven. Conversation is not just how you speak. It's how you act. Your actions can be your conversation. We've used the word body language, right? Our conversation is in heaven from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because our conversation is in heaven, because we should set our affections on things above, that means we're looking for the Savior to come from heaven. 
Verses 18 and 19 talk about the hypocrites that Proverbs says destroys their neighbors with their mouth. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. There are many in Paul's day that claimed to be followers of Christ but were actually his enemies, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. Paul was surrounded, as were the Philippians, by professing believers whose God wasn't God, it was their own belly. And they minded earthly things, not heavenly things. They were the hypocrites that destroyed their neighbors with their mouth by saying one thing and doing something else. Proverbs 11. But by knowledge, the righteous were delivered. By knowledge of who Christ is and what He's going to do, believers were exhorted to have a heavenly conversation quite unlike being caught up in the world. It's amazing to me nowadays that so many Christians, so many pastors are consumed with whether or not their church is abiding by CDC guidelines and not whether or not their church is looking for the coming of Christ and ready for it. It's amazing. I hear Romans 13, Romans 13, Romans 13. Do what you're told, do what you're told. But yet everything that Paul had said doctrinally in Romans chapters 1 through 11 brings us to chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, in light of all this doctrinal truth, don't be conformed to the world. And he only says that about rulers after he said don't be conformed to the world. And there's no ability to see it. In Philippians 3.20, you've got the hypocrites. You've got the ones who say one thing and do another. Minding earthly things. And then you've got those who are told to look for the Savior. Heavenly conversation, look for. That word look for, what Paul is telling the Philippians to look for, they're to look for that resurrection, that rapture that Paul told the Thessalonians in chapter 4 and the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15. They're told to look for it. It is a very strong compound word in the original language. In other words, you're to look for it or focus on it to the point that you're disregarding other things. To look for Christ's coming to the point that it causes you by default to disregard other things. The things that the hypocrites were minding in verses 18 through 19. So the question, guys, is this. What are we disregarding, Lord, as we look for your imminent coming? There ought to be things we're disregarding. I disregard 100% completely COVID-19. I disregard it in my life. I'm not telling you you need to. I'm not telling you should. But that's one thing I'm disregarding as I wait for Christ. Why am I disregarding? Because, guys, I'm not the guy that's going to be worried about a virus with a 99.7% survival rate when I've lived in the third world and every meal I eat in the village has a risk of some parasite crawling on it. Long ago, I decided not to look at them washing the dishes. Not to pay attention to the kitchen, not to even look in the, in the doorway. I don't want to know. And when I pray over my meal, I take it seriously. When I ask God to make the food nourishing, I, I mean it. So I'm not the guy that's going to be hiding my house when I've actually had bacteria and parasites that have made me deathly sick at times when you couldn't get the medicine. So I'm not going to be that guy. 
That's something I'm disregarding. I'm living my life. If I get sick, by God's grace, I will recover. I've never considered it somebody's fault if they passed a sickness on to me in my life. Plenty of people, some in here, have given me sicknesses by passing it on. Guys, I've never been upset with you. I've never blamed you for it. It's life. But what are we disregarding as we look for your imminent coming, Lord? Should maybe we disregard a little more all this political garbage? Maybe should we disregard what might happen a year from now and worry more about whether Christ comes today or tomorrow? When we think about His imminent coming, suddenly Donald Trump, Joe Biden, the communists taking over our government, these rat bum Supreme Court justices, and all this politics really pales. It loses its luster. I mean, when we were out preaching the cross on Friday night on that street corner, the last person on my mind was Governor Roy Cooper and his stupid little curfew. Those things pale in comparison when we start talking about Christ. Doesn't mean we shouldn't care. Doesn't mean we shouldn't speak up. But our lives ought to look like Mary's. There are things we're disregarding as we believe and follow God's word. It can be said that Mary in some ways was disregarding her safety, her own security as paramount. Doesn't mean she rejected it, but there were other things more important. And she lived by what she said. Our expectation and our hope doesn't die with us. Simeon understood that. He was happy to die. Yet today in the American church, so many believers are afraid to go to heaven. Oh, I might get COVID and die and go to heaven. Because our expectation and our hope doesn't die with us, we must stand against tyranny and interpose and stand in the gap just like the wise men did between Herod and Mary and Joseph and the baby. The Lord will deliver His people. He will, just as Joseph through obedience to the Lord, was the instrument of delivering his family from Herod. He could deliver us at any moment. Are we ready and prepared? As Mary was. Are we valiant and fearless like those witnesses in Hebrews 11? What about the Israelites? What did God tell them to do? How did He tell them to be prepared? To leave Egypt. They didn't know at what hour. The angel of death was going to move through the camp. They weren't told what specific moment or that something needed to happen first. They just knew the angel of death was coming. They needed to paint the blood on the doors. And they were told there in Exodus 12 to have their loins girded, to make sure their shoes were on their feet, and that their staff was in their hand as they ate the Passover. In other words, be ready to leave. Do we have our loins girded, our shoes on, our staffs in our hand as we go about our daily business? Not ignoring our responsibilities. The Israelites didn't ignore the Passover. They cooked it and kept it like God said, but they did it prepared to leave so that when the time came, they could go. Are we prepared? Are we ready? What does that look like? I think Paul gives the answer to the Thessalonians who after what he taught them in the first epistle about the coming of the Lord, began to worry if maybe they had missed it. Paul said, oh no, 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 no. You haven't missed it. A 
falling away before Christ comes and sets up his kingdom, there's going to be a great falling away. And the man of sin will have to be revealed. But he can't be revealed until a what and a he that restrains evil are taken out of the way. The what is the church, the he is the Holy Spirit that indwells it. And therefore, you're to be looking for Christ, not worrying about Antichrist. But in 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 through 12, this is a clue as to how we could best prepare for Christ's imminent coming. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any should not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some among you which walk disorderly, working not at all, they're busybodies. Now them that are such we command and exhort by the Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread and ye brethren be not weary in well-doing. The best preparation for Christ's imminent coming is the faithful performance of our, per- our, our present duties. I'm reminded of how I read to you some weeks ago the testimony of those believers in Cambodia. They knew Phnom Penh was going to fall. They knew the Khmer Rouge were going to take over. They knew that many would die and be persecuted. And yet up until the day that the city fell, they carried, about, they carried on with their present duties. They didn't cancel the missions conference. They didn't cancel it. They continued to meet. 90% of those that met would end up perishing. But they carried on with their faithful duties. They didn't shut their churches down. That's the best way to prepare. Faithful performance of our present duties. Do as if, like Mary, we believe what we confess or what we say. Do it. And that would mean that our lives should be lives that don't portray a fear of man. Now, that doesn't mean you won't struggle with it. We're in the flesh. But we need not be those that fear man. We need to go about our business. Do what God's commanded us to do. That's the best way to be ready. And then when Christ comes, as Spurgeon said, you're not going to be ashamed. Next time you want to fall into sin, or you want to fall into depression and discouragement, or you want to stay home when the Lord has told you to go, ask yourself, what if Christ comes in the next five minutes? Am I going to be ashamed? Our expectation and hope ought to give us a ministry of interposition. That ought to be part of our duty. Imminency ought to compel us to do what we have been called to do, not to change, not to capitulate, because some tyrannical government tells us to. Act like men. Paul tells them there in 1 Corinthians, stand strong, act like men. Quit you like men. 1 John 3 tells us if we have this hope, then we will purify ourselves. What better way to purify ourselves than holy living, aggressive ministry, and faithfully doing what we know our Lord's commanded us, regardless of our circumstances. Christ's imminent coming for the believer is undeniable in the New Testament. It's undeniable. Be ready at any moment. This ought to motivate our conduct in these days in which we live. It's undeniable and therefore yields what I say is an unavoidable implication. 
Because Christ's coming is imminent and we're to be ready at any moment, the testimony of Jesus, the apostles, the early church, the reformers, because of that, there's only one type of rapture there can be, my friends, a pre-trib rapture. A mid-trib or a post-trib makes no sense because other things would have to happen first. And we're told nothing has to happen. There's an unavoidable implication here. Christ's coming, His coming to rapture His church should be something we look forward to, something we're looking out for, and something we patiently await. If this is true, if what we're looking for is a rapture of Christ's church before the onset of Daniel's 70th week, before the coming of God's wrath outpoured on the world, then you would think the seeds of this doctrine would be found enfolded or germinating in the earth of the Old Testament because every other major New Testament doctrine is. It's not new. It's the sprouting, the budding of what is planted in the Old What is unfolded or veiled in the Old Testament is unfolded and unveiled in the New Testament. It is one. It is the Word of God. Is there any New Testament teaching or doctrine for God's church that is not the sprout or vine of a seed sown in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms? Finding those seeds is key to confirming and affirming our doctrine, our expectation, and our hope. So if I'm going to declare to you today to be ready for the Lord's rapture of His church at any moment prior to the tribulation, then I ought to be able to show you seeds of that in the Old Testament. We know the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Revelation chapter 3, Revelation 4, 1, Matthew 24, Luke 21, Luke 17, Luke 12. We know these things. Can we find seeds? Was Jesus teaching something new or is it something that was already sown, just like everything else? You know, we could get a lot of clear understanding if we consider Jesus' imagery as allusions to imagery that's already been given in the Old Testament. So I would like to take the last Sunday next week to show you seeds of this great blessed hope in the Old Testament. Maybe something you've never heard. Paul talks about the rapture in 1 Corinthians 15. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. Something previously veiled, but now unveiled. God's relationship. Jews and the Gentiles coming together in a body called the church was a mystery. It was veiled in the Old Testament. It's unveiled today. Same should be said of Christ coming for His church at any moment, the rapture. And it's there. It's there. So I've done teachings on the pre-trib rapture in here. I'm not afraid to talk about it. Some people want to avoid things because Christians disagree. If avoiding a topic is because someone might disagree, then your motivation is skewed. I mean, there are people out there that disagree with every word that comes out of my mouth. So if that motivated me to keep quiet, I'd be quiet all the time. My wife disagrees with a lot of what I say. Sometimes she's right in that. Many times she's right in that. But we're told it's a mystery. And if it's a biblical mystery, there ought, we ought to be able to find it in the Old Testament. And I'm here to tell you we can. 
Not only can we find it there, we can also find the future of America there. And it's not MAGA. It's not Trump being restored and America being great again and everything going back to the way it was and us having glorious liberty and freedom. It is not those things. It's already been written. But in the future destruction of this country, there's deliverance for the righteous. There's a great present that's going to be offered up to the Lord of us, the church, particularly us, the descendants of those that are prophesied against there in Isaiah. So next week we'll look at the rapture in the Old Testament, and I hope that that will give you some comfort. Guys, let's live as if we believe these things. Let's follow Mary's example. Great with child went out the door and went to Bethlehem. Christ is coming for us. Let's go out the door. Let's go about our business. Let's be faithful. And for, for God's sake, stop living in fear. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for these biblical truths. We thank you, Lord, that your coming is at any moment. May we be motivated by that. May we be those who believe what we say. And it reflects in our conduct. I know I've failed many times, Lord. So help us to... Follow Mary's example, Lord. And when the risk is great, to go about our work. To go about it as Brother Beechner did in Nepal. And um, to look for your coming. To live as if you could come at any moment. And we pray you would hasten that, Lord. But not before those here in this room who have not placed their faith and trust in Christ would do so, Lord. Hasten your coming, Lord. But do it in such a way that we could all be gone. And we could all be delivered together. Thank you for this food, Lord. May it give us strength today. Bless our fellowship. And Lord, thank you that Jesus, who was born in the manger, also went to a cross. He was crucified, he was buried, and he rose up again the third day. Therefore, God, you command us to repent and be born again. Thank you for that hope. In Jesus' name I pray.